Last week, if you remember, we left the Apostle Paul at the moment in which he was saying goodbye to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And you remember that was a very personal uh, goodbye in which he uh, spoke to them again as an example, as a leader, as someone who would never see them again. And he left them, says the book of Acts, he tore himself away from him. They were crying, they, they had tears in their eyes, their hearts were broken, and their hearts were so united with each other that, that they literally had to tear themselves apart. And then Paul sailed on to uh, Tyrus, to Tyre in the, in the land of Syria. He stayed there for a little while. And the disciples, uh, Paul was committed to going on to Jerusalem, and the disciples there really didn't want him to go. They figured it might cost him his life. He continued his journey and went on to Caesarea, a city in the northernmost part of Israel, and there the same thing happened. The disciples that were there pled with him not to go to Jerusalem, but he still was committed to going there. When he got to Jerusalem, he told the elders of the church there what had happened during this third missionary journey and how the Gentiles had heard the gospel and what had God had done through him. And the elders were concerned about something. They thought that the Jewish people in Jerusalem would be upset because Paul was not keeping to the Jewish customs, laws, and rituals. As you've heard us say before, as we've gone through Acts, Jerusalem was a tinderbox. If you think today's situation in the United States is partisan, is a tinderbox, it may be comparable. It may have been worse there because things were more concentrated and small. And the disciples, the elders in the church in Jerusalem were suggested that Paul take four men who had made some kind of a Jewish vow and go through the purification rites in and around the temple and with the priests with them. So Paul did that. The rites took seven days. At the end of the seven days, Acts tells us, some Jews who were from Asia, they weren't even from Jerusalem originally, saw Paul at the temple, and they started a riot. And this is what they said. This man is teaching, and listen to this carefully because we're going to come back to it. This man is teaching against our people, our law, and this place, the temple. An angry crowd gathered. They seized Paul and literally tried to kill him. The Roman commander who was charged with keeping peace in the city heard about the riot, rushed over with his soldiers to restore law and order, arrested Paul. Paul said, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. And then Paul asked if he could speak with the people. So the Roman commander granted that precision, that, that permission, said, sure, you can talk to them. And Paul spoke to the crowd in Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus and the disciples and most Jews used at that particular point in Second Temple Israel. And so I want to read with you this morning Acts 22, the first part of it, the 
speech that Paul gave to the Jews. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, spoke well, spoke well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for me to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I saw they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Then they raised their voices. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So in this in this speech to the Jews at Jerusalem, Paul gives his own personal testimony. He aligns himself with Jewish history, with Jewish culture, with Jewish nationalism. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus. I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was thoroughly trained under your great teacher, Gamaliel. I was as zealous for God as anyone. In fact, I was so zealous that I was willing to persecute the followers of the way, not only in Jerusalem, but all the way to Damascus. And do you remember when you stoned Stephen? I was there. I approved of that so much that I even held your coats. 
You see how Paul is identifying himself with his Jewish culture, saying, I'm one of you. And I was zealous. I was willing to murder. But then he says, Jesus broke in. In light and voice. The light blinds Paul. He needs to be blinded in order to get a new way of looking. He understands that Jesus is the righteous one, is the Messiah, and he commits to follow him. And then Jesus gives him his mission. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that enrages the Jews. Did you notice that? All this speech he went through, everything was fine. Until that last line. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This man, they said, is teaching against our people, our law, and our place. Our very lives are threatened, they said. Our very culture is threatened. Everything that we have always known and thought was good, everything that was given to us by God, all the way back to the call of Abraham, is in their mind being threatened. Our history will be wiped away. Our culture will disappear. All the good things that we have done, what will they become? Our values will be watered down and destroyed. Paul by saying that he was sent to the Gentiles, is opening the door to these pagan people, these foreigners, these people with a different religion and a different values and different history. The nationalism of the Jews at that time was logical. It was understandable. There was even a certain amount of truth in it. But it was, in the final analysis, especially in these days, misguided. And Paul attacks it right at the point that hurts them the most. And they get furiously angry with him. And the Roman commander is afraid that the crowd will kill him again, so he imprisons Paul. And sends him the next day to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council composed of about 71 men who legislated all aspects of Jewish religious and political life. So this was, I don't know exactly how to compare it with anything we know today, but this was the council that ran everything. This was the council that was charged with protecting the Jewish nationality and their values and everything that was good about them. So Paul stands in front of them, and then we're going to read what happens starting in Acts 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So you see he's connecting again back with their history. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, 
God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And notice here that Paul is not saying, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to hit you, but God is going to deal with you. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees of the Sanhedrin and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that God would be, that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring, them, bring him into the barracks. So Paul looks at this group, and, and obviously he's smart enough. He, he plays this kind of a political and theological game with them. But the thing that sets them off is a little different than what set the Jewish crowd off. Remember, the Jewish crowd was set off by Paul saying, I'm, going, I'm being sent by God to the Gentiles to open the door to the Gentiles. Here, he says, it is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. N.T. Wright points out that the concept of, rev- of resurrection among the Jews at this time was the belief that when God returned to his people, the righteous who had died would be resurrected. Resurrection, therefore, went hand in hand with the dawn of the Messianic age. The Jews believed that when the Messiah came and established the kingdom, and all the enemies were driven out of the land, and the new age had dawned, what in the New Testament is translated as eternal life, the new age, the age to come, that age would be marked by resurrection from the dead of all the saints. Not to go to some heaven up there sometime, but to live here on earth in the new messianic age. Resurrection meant for the Jews at that time that the final act of history had happened. And Paul is saying, it's happened. With Jesus, this crucial turning point moment in history has happened. Restoration is here. Brokenness no longer has the last word. The new kingdom of David's son has begun. The new age has begun. And Jesus is the son of David 
who did that. And the Sanhedrin objected for two reasons, and I think there are reasons why we would object to that today also. Number one, for them, it could not be possible that Jesus was the chosen one. It just didn't fit there. The, the, the Gospels and the whole Old, New Testament is, is full of that inability to see that the chosen one whom they expected came so differently and acted so differently and was so different and died. Because for the Jews, the final proof that you are not a Messiah is that you die. So that was hard for them to believe. But the second thing that was hard for them to believe was that nothing had changed. The Romans were still there. See the Roman commander. Herod was still there. Pilate was still there. The Roman soldiers were all around. Probably the crosses of the crucifixions of Jewish people were still all around. The oppression was there. The demands of the Roman soldiers to tax, to enslave, and to impress, all of that was there. Nothing had changed. So how could you say that the final act or that the central act of history has happened, that the resurrection is here, that the thing that would change our lives forever has already happened. It makes no sense. And it drove them into fear and dissension and likely some kind of despair as well as anger. You see what's happening here. Right at the end of Acts, Luke is describing for us how Paul, in his last contact with the Jewish community, the message that Paul is giving them. Luke spends a couple chapters right here at the end of Acts to lay out for us as clearly as possible the message that Paul has for the Jewish community for the Jewish nationalists of his time. And what was that message? It was twofold. One was, the door is open to the Gentiles. Exclusive Jewish nationalism is over. And the moment that changes history forever, for us and for the world, has already happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Those are the two things that Paul is saying to the Jews of his time. Now, as we've been going through Acts, we have said many times that there is much about the time, the times in which these stories happened that is equivalent to our time. I've already referred to it. We live in a time of tension. We live in a time of pressure cooker life, partly because of COVID, partly because of the partisanship and splits that are, that are, that are in our country and in the West in general. 
We're living in a time in which we, particularly as Americans, many of us are asking the question, what's going to happen? And it doesn't really matter upon which side of the political divide you find yourself, you're asking yourself this question. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our people? What's going to happen to our laws, to our values, to our culture? And what's going to happen to this place, to this country, to this land, to this world in which we find ourselves? The conservative commentator Victor Davis Hanson wrote just this week in a, in a at least it's a website, I don't know if it's an actual magazine called Town Hall. Town Hall. Americans are growing angrier by the day, but in a way different from prior sagebush revolts such as the 1960s silent majority or the Tea Party movement over a decade ago. The rage this time is not just fueled by conservatives. For the first time in their lives, Americans of all classes and races are starting to fear a self-created apocalypse that threatens their family safety and the American way of life. Right? At the root of the fear that many of us feel is a threat to our safety, whether it's of me personally or us in general, and a threat to our American way of life. And I think just like with the Jews of the time of Paul, these concerns that we have are understandable. There's even some logic about them. It makes sense. But could it not also be that the message that Paul said to the Jews of that time, your nationalism is over, that that message could also apply to us today? Could it be that as understandable and logical and reasonable as our nationalism is, it is also, like the Jewish nationalism of that time, misguided? Diane Langberg is a psychologist, evangelical, conservative Christian, has worked in the area of trauma and abuse for years, for more than 40 years, around the world, including in Rwanda and Cambodia. And this week, she put out this tweet, and if you could also share it, on uh, Christopher, on screen, that'd be great. We have thought our race... Our community, our nation, our way of thinking is superior. Rather than seeking desperately to develop the mind of Christ about all things, anything that deflects from the centrality of Jesus Christ and his cross is of the flesh. We 
We have thought that we are superior because of our race, because of our community, our way of thinking, because of our nationality. And Diane Langberg, like Paul, is asking us the question, are we misguided? And are we failing to put Jesus Christ central and his cross and his resurrection that opens the door to all people? As Paul wrote in Galatians 3, there is no longer in this new age in which we find ourselves, Jew or Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And the fear and the anger and the threat that we are feeling to the degree that you're feeling that. What is that rooted in? That's what Paul was asking the Jews of Jerusalem. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so angry? Why are you willing to kill me? Why are you willing to riot in the streets? Don't you understand that Jesus is the righteous one? And that his death, life, death, and resurrection opens the door to all people. And that the kingdom of God is where our allegiance is. The kingdom of God is where our hearts should be. That it's out of the values of the kingdom of God that we live and move and act. And that there are finally no more borders or barriers between people. All barriers have been broken down. The wall of enmity, as Paul says in Ephesians, is broken down. So that's the first thing. The second thing is hope. In the resurrection of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we have hope. As threatened as you may feel, as legitimate as your concerns may be, can you place your hope in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who rose from the dead, which means that the back of evil has been broken, that evil does not have the last word, that the empire of evil will be destroyed, And that the victory of the kingdom of God is sure. That's the whole story of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, we went through it two years ago. The book of Revelation is not about what's going to happen in the future. It's about what's happening behind the scenes right now. And Rome and Babylon is destroyed. As is every empire. So 
So see what Paul does here. He attacks our nationalism. And he offers hope. And see how the Jews responded. <laughs> they rioted. They kept trying to kill him. They did everything they could. The, the rest of the, the history of Paul in Jerusalem shows that. They did everything they could to still try to kill him. Because they weren't willing to leave their nationalism behind them. And give themselves over to this Jesus. Can you imagine how discouraging that would have been for Paul, who was to the depths of his soul a Jew? If you think you're discouraged when you watch the news these days, think about Paul. So how does this story end? Acts 23, verse 11. It's the verse I didn't read, but it's going to, going to read it for you now. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And Jennings says this, uh, um, James Willie Jennings says this about this particular verse. Jesus encourages Paul. This is what Jesus does. He encourages us in the midst of struggle. And especially at what seems like a beginning of the intensification of suffering. This intimacy will be the engine that drives everything Paul will say and do now. Every moment is a Jesus moment in which and through which Jesus will breathe every breath with Paul, hear every sound, and speak in Paul. Paul and Jesus will be like the two musicians who have become one in song, each leaning in to hear the other and expressing a sound that speaks the one sound they want heard. It's just beautiful. Paul and Jesus will be like the two musicians who have become one in song, each leaning in to hear the other and expressing a sound that speaks to the one sound they want heard, which is the sound of the song of the kingdom of God. Jesus encourages Paul. He's, he's intimate with Paul. And that's where I want to conclude today, in your own feeling of being threatened. Whichever side of the political divide you find yourself on. This has been, actually, a pretty bad week. It started with a report on climate change. And even as we speak, Kabul in Afghanistan is falling. How do you get this intimacy with Jesus so that you can walk through these times? That's not easy for most of us. Sometimes because of personality. Sometimes because we, we haven't been particularly trained in that. And 
And I actually don't have a particular answer for you as to how to do that. I don't know. It's enough of a struggle for me. But I would encourage you in these times, particularly in these times, to search for it. How could I hear Jesus speaking to me? How could we go play this duet together? Perhaps you need to find another language than the one you've heard all your life, than the church language you've heard all your life. Read the Bible in a different uh, translation or in a paraphrase, or if you're any, in any way familiar with another language, read it in another language. Perhaps you need to read different authors. Authors of another gender or ethnicity. Perhaps you need to listen to different people who will give you different words. Perhaps you need to explore finding Jesus in other places, in music, in art, in nature. In the John's 3.16 challenge. Or engaging in activities that bring Jesus' love to the marginalized. Or instead of fighting against and pushing away your suffering, thinking about what it might look like and feel like to embrace Jesus in your suffering as he walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know. But in the agonies of the times in which we live, where we're now going back to wearing masks here in the building, when we thought we were done with them. Same is true in Wawa. They want you now again to wear masks. Or whatever agonies you're facing, whatever ways in which you feel threatened and uprooted, and your life is not what it was and maybe never will be, and that gives you pain. How can you find Jesus? And I just encourage you to ask God to help you do that and to take steps to do something different and open yourself up to the possibility that Jesus might come to you as he did to Paul and comfort you and say, look, I'm with you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. Whatever happens in this world around us. Amen.